Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Greg Brownerville Dimension. I know it's been a little longer than usual since my last episode. That's because I've been traveling. In fact, since Christmas, I've mostly been in Wales with a few forays into England. And part of what I've been up to is gathering content for this show. Today's episode is the first one drawing on my recent experience in Britain, and my guest is the great English biologist Rupert Sheldrake, whose work I admire very much. Rupert is known in part for his fascinating hypothesis about what he calls morphic fields and morphic resonance, which he'll be talking about a little bit in our conversation. Rupert has written several books. Two that I've enjoyed recently are The Science Delusion and another one called Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, Seven Spiritual Practices in a Scientific Age. His books command tremendous interest, not only among other scientists, but also among artists and spiritual seekers and philosophers. I would say that his thought bears affinities with that of the Irish poet and magician William Butler Yeats, whom I've discussed quite a lot on this podcast, and the Swiss psychoanalyst and mystic Carl Jung. But I don't want my talk about magic and mysticism to give you the wrong impression. Rupert is a tough-minded scientist devoted to the scientific method, and he's tested his ideas again and again with carefully devised experiments. He's earned hero status for going hard at a certain strain of arrogant, dogmatic, atheistic materialism, which I consider to be a scourge upon the intellectual landscape. If only we had many, many more intellectuals with Rupert's outlook and his approach, the affinities among art, science, the humanities, and spirituality, the relationship between the academy and the rest of society, and humankind's relationship with the natural world would all be much, much stronger, I believe. It was truly an honor to sit down and talk with him. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Rupert Sheldrake. Well, I usually start the conversation by welcoming my interlocutor to the Greg Brownerville dimension, but today's situation is rather more a case of my being welcomed into the Rupert Sheldrake dimension since we're here in your home in London. I just wanted to thank you for your hospitality and for being willing to talk with me today. Good to meet you, Greg. The part of London where we are today, Hampstead, is near and dear to my heart because when I was an undergraduate, and studying in England for one semester, I made a couple of literary pilgrimages, and one of them was to Hampstead to see the John Keats house, which is a seven minutes walk from where we're sitting right now. I know that you practice pilgrimage, although maybe not of the literary variety, but could you say something about the pleasure and power of pilgrimage as you understand it? Pilgrimage is deeply archetypal. Our ancestors, who were hunter-gatherers, moved around the landscape. So moving was part of their lifestyle. And significant places, as they went on their annual journeys, were very important. They had their stories and ceremonies. And when people settled in the Neolithic uh, period, and uh, they still had pilgrimage places here in England, places like Stonehenge, which were centres for festivals. They weren't in the middle of cities. Um, so a pilgrimage to a holy place is, is very, very deeply archetypal, and it's found in all religious traditions all over the world, in 
in shamanic cultures, in Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, you know, with Mecca and the shrines of Sufi saints, and in the Christian world. And in the Middle Ages, Europe was crisscrossed with all sorts of pilgrimage routes. Um, it was suppressed at the Reformation in the Protestant countries, um, um, but it's being revived again now. And it's, uh, for those of us who are rediscovering pilgrimage, um, it's very, very satisfying. It's not just a walk or a hike. Um, it has a destination and a purpose, and that purpose is to go with an intention to give thanks for something or to ask for something um, at a holy place. And I personally find it much more satisfying than just going for a hike or a walk. Although, in fact, many people who go on hikes or walks are, in fact, going on a kind of pilgrimage to sacred groves or natural holy places. Yes, and I've enjoyed Nick Mayhew Smith's book, The Naked Hermit, which I found out about through your conversations with Mark Vernon. And I enjoyed his stories about reenacting the pilgrimages and rituals of Celtic spirituality and Celtic Christianity. Well, what Nick Mayhew Smith shows and, and uh, discovered, really, I mean, because I'd never seen anyone put it so clearly before, was that the Celtic saints were really into connecting with nature. Um, that's what it was about. Um, that's why they lived in remote places like Skellig Michael off the west coast of Ireland and Iona off the west coast of Scotland and Lindisfarne off the east coast of England. So they sought out remote places and they had practices like standing in icy cold water, <laughs> which was Nick Mayhew Smith has revived. But now this is actually quite fashionable. I mean, the Wim Hof method, for example. Right. And uh, Andrew Huberman has been promoting that on his podcast, I've noticed. Yes. Well, there are a lot of people now doing that. And, um, and what it is, is a way of very physically connecting with the elements and with the natural world. Um, a literally immersive way of, of connecting. And I think what he shows is the Celtic saints were very much concerned with relating their spiritual life to the life of nature. And that's those the places they were based at are still places of pilgrimage. Lindisfarne is one of the great places of pilgrimage here in Britain. Um, so is Iona. Um, then later, when uh, the, the pilgrimages became also centered on the temples, you know, in the ancient world, they were always temple-centered pilgrimages as well as more natural ones, like Jewish people going to the temple in Jerusalem, Hindus right. going to temples in in India. Uh, the, our cathedrals uh, are the temples of the Christian world. And um, so these uh, cathedrals were often associated with the relics of saints who were buried there, and saints were people who were considered to be deeply connected with the spiritual realm and to form a kind of bridge between the spiritual and the um, physical, and uh, between the heaven and the earth. And holy places are really linking up places between heaven and earth. So the cathedrals became um, centers where people went on pilgrimages to connect with the saints, as well as with the holy place of the cathedral itself. So here in England, one of the most popular pilgrimages in the Middle Ages was to Canterbury Cathedral, 
the shrine of St. Thomas Becket. Um, there were also many other pilgrimage places like Walsingham, the shrine of the Black Madonna. Um, she wasn't a, a saint, or at least her relics weren't in England, but um, she was considered to have appeared there, and that became a very, very important place of pilgrimage, which was revived about a 100 years ago and is now, again, a major place of pilgrimage. It makes me think about your work and your interest, because on the one hand, you are a biologist who tends very closely to the physical life. You're also a scientist of spiritual studies and morphic resonances, if I understand it, about how the mind can be where the body is not. But in pilgrimage, you're bringing the body along, as it were, and it's all about bodily thereness. This interest in the physical life is something I've noticed in some of your comments that you've made. And I've heard you talk about viewing Christ, especially Christ as sacrificial lamb, through an evolutionary lens. Could you say something about that? I found your thoughts on that fascinating. Well, I think um, I, I think that the one of the points of Christianity is that uh, Christ is uh, incarnation of the divine. So it's not a form of religion that tries to deny the physical. There are certain kinds of um, Platonic spirituality or certain kinds of Gnostic spirituality, which are all about hating the body or minimizing the body and trying to go beyond the body and seeing the body as a prison uh, for the spirit, which really needs to be liberated entirely from the physical realm. And you could argue that some kinds of oriental spirituality are about liberating the spirit from the body. I mean, in Buddhism, it's about letting go of desires and not feeling these... In a way, it's letting go of life itself, right. to go beyond life itself, to to a spiritual realm. I think about Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita saying to Arjuna that the body is like a suit of clothes, yes. whereas you've got Christ in John 6 saying, except ye eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Yes, so it's very embodied. I'm, of course, in, in Indian and Buddhist spirituality, it's the tantric tradition, which is, as it were, yes. the embodied version. Right. So I mean, these are very rich and varied traditions, so they do have the, the tantric form, I Absolutely. think, is closer to the uh, Christian embodied form. So it's very much about uh, embodied experience. I mean, the Celtic saints were hugely about that. I mean, you can't be up to your neck in... <laughs> water in the North Sea, um, as St. Cuthbert was, uh, without being aware of the body. Um, so I think that the point about the pilgrimage, and indeed about most spiritual practices, is that they are embodied. They bring, they affect the physical embodiment. Uh, uh, they, 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 there's, there's pilgrimage, you go to a place and the reason those places are powerful in relation to morphic resonance, it's about memory primarily. It's a form of resonance across time. And if you go to a holy place where many people have had visions or been enlightened or have prayed or have felt a connection with the divine, then simply being in that place brings you into resonance with those who've been there before. So there's a kind of memory in the place which helps uh, the experience of being there. So it's not as if you're just in a place for the first time. You're in a place where many people have had spiritual experiences. Now, it works the other way around. There are negative places where awful things have happened. Most ghost stories or haunting stories tell of terrible things that have happened there. So it can be negative memories. But holy places are, generally speaking, places with 
positive spiritual uh, memory. I think in relation to the evolutionary background of, of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, um, I think that the the idea that it, for most people it seems in the modern world seems incomprehensible, the idea one person should die to save others. Um, it becomes more comprehensible when you look at it in the context of warfare, where lots of young men and now young women too are prepared to die to save other people. And you could argue that when we remember the war dead from the First and the Second World War and from other wars, what we're doing is remembering people who did lay down their lives to save other people. Right. So, I mean, it's not as if this is some archaic archetype that's irrelevant to the modern world. Right. I mean, it's happening in the Ukraine right now. Absolutely. Hundreds of thousands of people are prepared to die for their country. Um, so that is a kind of vicarious sacrifice in the sense they're dying for the sake of others. But I think the evolutionary roots are, um, go back to uh, um, social animals. If you look at antelopes in Africa, for example, they live in herds. And they have predators like lions. And the lions don't just indiscriminately go in and slaughter entire herds of antelopes. I mean, not like sort of people settling the American West with guns, you know, those wonderful pigeon flocks that would go over the West and were completely decimated. I and mean, they're just killed indiscriminately on a massive industrial scale. That's not how predators work. They select... Uh, one, usually a young or infirm member of the flock that can't keep up with the rest, kill it, eat it. And when, as soon as they've killed it and they're eating it, they're not hungry anymore. And the rest of the herd can relax. Um, they visibly relax because one has been sacrificed for the sake of the rest. Um, and I think that that archetype of sacrifice, which is very common for all social animals. And it comes into fairy tales with the maiden who's given every year to the dragon, um, you know, so the dragon doesn't attack the city or the community. There's a, a sacrifice um, of a, a, a living sacrifice um, to protect the others. I think that gets built into this whole tradition of blood sacrifice, originally human sacrifice. But then in many traditions that switched over to animals instead. In the Bible, the transition point is with Abraham and Isaac, where instead of killing Isaac as a human sacrifice, um, the, the Abraham kills a ram instead. And so then you have the idea of sacrificial um, sheep or goat, uh, which is very deep in uh, was deep in, in Judaism and in Islam and Christianity. There's the idea of a sacrificial animal. Um, Bakrid is the Muslim festival of the, of Abraham and the, the sacrifice. Um, and in the Jewish tradition, you have the sacrifice of a lamb at the Passover in Egypt where they kill a young sheep and that, and the blood of that protects them from, uh, the death that's visited on the Egyptians. Um, and the Jewish people also had the, the idea of a scapegoat, where you load the sins of the whole community onto a goat that was driven out into the desert where it perished, and the idea is it took away the sins of the whole community every year. So I think all these archetypal patterns of 
animal sacrifice um, play an important role in the Christian story. And when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, Agnes Dei, which is sung in, in the Mass in Anglican and Catholic churches every Sunday, O Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Um, that idea is like the scapegoat or the sacrificial animal, although in the Christian story you have the interesting reversal that the animal sacrifice is then turned back into a human sacrifice, what some Christian authors call the full and final sacrifice, uh, where Jesus is substituted for the lamb, as it were, the sacrificial lamb. You have a reversion to human sacrifice and in, indeed to cannibalism if you uh, think of the Holy Communion as the body and blood of Jesus. It's a kind of cannibalistic feast. This is basically an extremely ancient archetype that comes back after a long series of animal sacrifices back into a human sacrifice. So I think behind the crucifixion story, which is for many people in the modern world incomprehensible, there are these very, very deep and profound archetypal patterns. I've noticed an affinity, Rupert, between your ideas and those of certain poets, like Yeats, who wrote, whatever the passions of man have gathered about becomes a symbol in the great memory. This makes me think of morphic resonance. And in thinking back on the writing of my own poems, I've thought about morphic resonance and wondered whether it might support a certain kind of artistic risk-taking. Let me give you an example from my own practice. One time I was writing a poem, and I wanted to evoke the voice of this woman who sings in my church. I loved her voice, a woman named Carol Lee Robb, and she had sung many a beautiful song in our church services. And the line that came to me, or the phrase, was, she had a voice of pure banana cream Jesus. And there was one voice inside me of mere intellect that said, Greg, nobody's going to know what that means. You're just going to lose the reader. But there was a deeper voice that said, no, go with it. People will connect with it. Just do it. Just put it down and see what happens. So I went with it. And readers have come up to me. It's happened several times and told me that that was their favorite line in the book. And so I've, I've thought about the possibility that when you're writing a poem, you're connecting with some kind of archetype, and you can't explain how or exactly how that archetype's working, but something tells you, take the risk, go for the weird image, it's going to work. Do you think that morphic resonance may have a role to play in this type of artistic experience? Well, morphic resonance is mainly about habits. It's mainly about repetitive habits in nature. And I think that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. So I think it's principally to do with repetitive, repetitive habits more than creativity. And But you could argue that when you come up with an image, like the banana cream, that the... The habit of banana cream, the habit of the the, um, the the sort of taste, the texture, the all the things that those evoke in people, um, 
uh, you could say that plays an important part in the creative process because you're actually invoking a habit or an image which people are familiar with or can imagine um, and putting it in a new context. Now, morphic resonance doesn't explain creativity. It only explains repetition. So the idea of using that image in that context is part of your poetic creativity. But the effect of the images really depends on how they resonate with people, how they understand them, and how they see this new image in a new con- this image in a new context. It's strange. I'm only thinking of this now for the first time. But years before I wrote that poem, I had a mysterious dream in which I was sitting in a chair holding a notebook that had two columns on the page I was looking at. And I was approached from behind by a shadowy presence. And I understood in the dream that I was not to turn around and look back, but that I should just look at the notebook. And that this presence had come to gift me ideas for poetry. And as he drew closer, the words simply appeared on the page. On the left-hand side, it said, Christ. And on the right-hand side, it said, banana. So maybe this sense of a, of a deep mythological affinity between Christ and banana was coming back to me in that moment when I wrote the line, she had a voice of pure banana cream Jesus, who knows. Mm. Moving on to another topic, I've heard you tell a story that you call Mr. Or Richard Dawkins, I think. Richard Dawkins comes to call And it says something about how certain precincts of the scientific establishment have received you and your work. I wonder whether you could tell that story and say something about why it is that a man like Richard Dawkins should be so deeply bothered by you and what you've written. Well, the point about Dawkins is that he's a very committed atheist. Um, And atheists... uh, you know, there are some people who'd argue atheism is a Christian heresy, that atheists have a kind of evangelical zeal, at least evangelical atheists, of which he's one, an evangelical zeal to convert people to their point of view. Um, and they believe they're completely right and that everyone else is wrong. Um, and that their people are deluded and superstitious and they've seen through all this and it's basically a form of Protestantism. I think of it as Protestantism squared. You know, that <laughs> in, in the Protestant Reformation, Protestants delighted in going around pointing out how superstitious Roman Catholics were and how they had all these practices that were no more than mumbo-jumbo and so forth. Um, and and it, it, it sort of excoriating attacks on the Catholic Church. Uh, and Protestantism they claimed was a purified and simplified form of Christianity. Well, Protestantism squared involves applying that whole same critique to Protestantism, which puts the Bible in a very high place and attacks and attacks the Bible as the basis of authority and uh, uses kind of a corrosive, acidic skepticism uh, against the um, Protestant tradition, while uh, uh, aligning themselves with science. Science is now the true true religion, the the liberating force, the true belief, etc. Well, that 
in that way of thinking, which is quite common among militant atheists and has been since the 18th century, where science becomes the truth um, instead of scripture or revelation, um, then the any belief in religion is nothing but superstition and delusion. And psychic phenomena, which imply that the mind stretches beyond the brain, um, telepathy, for example, um, if I think of someone and want to call them on the phone, and at that moment they start thinking about me, and when I call them they say, it's funny, I was just thinking about you, telephone telepathy, very common, about 85% of people have experienced it, um, and the experiments I and others have done show that it's not just coincidence, um, there really is an influence going on. Well, that's deeply offensive to materialists and uh, atheistic materialists because they think the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. It's inside the head, and therefore your thoughts or intentions can't possibly affect anyone at a distance. Um, therefore, it's simply impossible. And so for Dawkins, the, the, uh, the fact that I claim to have evidence for telepathy can only show one thing. Uh, well, two things. It can show either that I'm a fool or that I'm a fraud. Uh, I'm a fool if I believe this stuff because it's obviously untrue and can't possibly be true. Uh, and if I claim I have evidence for it, then the evidence must be fraudulent because it's impossible for it really to happen. So when he came to interview me um, for his series, Enemies of Reason, um, From you, presumably, were one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to be an exhibit, you see. Um, the, well, this was a sequel, I should say, to put it in context. His previous TV series, shown here in Britain on Channel 4 television, called The Root of All Evil, which was about religion, which is the root of all evil, in his view. Um, then Enemies of Reason. Um, I'd seen the previous series, so when they asked me to take part, I said, you know, why on earth would I want to take part in another of his sort of debunking exercises. And they persuaded me to take part by saying that he was genuinely interested in the evidence. He really wanted to discuss the evidence and, um, for telepathy. And I was very surprised. I thought it was completely out of character. But I, I thought, okay, if he's really changed, if he's open to that, then, you know, as a scientist, I'm happy to discuss evidence. So I then said, well, if you put it in writing, that this is a meeting to discuss the evidence uh, for his series, and it's a, a level playing field debate between two scientists about scientific evidence, then I'll agree to take part. Smart move on your part. Well, he then came round here. I had it in writing and and he, with the director, and then he tried to start this interview by saying, um, he said, I dare say you and I have certain things in common. He said, but where we differ is I believe that science should be based on the minimum number of beliefs. And I said, well, what minimum number of beliefs? He, uh, and, and, and he, he said, well, you know, reasonable, rational beliefs. He said, well, what worries me about you, he said, is you're prepared to believe almost anything. And so I said to him, well, what worries me about you is that you come across as so dogmatic and narrow that I think it gives science a bad name. You know, I think science is about open-minded inquiry. So we didn't get very far with that. Um, then I, we got, he, he then tried several other ploys, um, saying that, um, that um, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof, <laughs> which is a standard skeptic slogan. 
So I said, well, it depends what you regard as an extraordinary claim. I said 85% of people claim to have had telepathic experiences with telephone calls or emails or text messages. Um, in that sense, it's an ordinary claim. I mean, if the great majority of the population are saying this, it's, it's an ordinary claim, not an extraordinary claim. <laughs> By and, definition. Yes. And I said, what's an extraordinary claim is the claim that most people are deluded about their own experience. I said, where's your extraordinary evidence for that? And he got really angry then. He said, you're trying to turn the tables on me. <laughs> Indignantly. <laughs> Which you were, in a way. I mean, but fair game. Um, and then I said, well, look, why don't we stop beating about the bush and just discuss the evidence? We've come to discuss the evidence for telepathy. Why don't we do that? You know, I sent you some key papers on the subject last week so you could read up in advance and look at the statistics and so on. And then he said, I don't want to discuss the evidence. And I said, well, why not? He said, it's too difficult. And I said, well, most people can understand it easily enough. It takes too long. I said, well, maybe five minutes. Um, and uh, they said, anyway, it's not what this program's about. And that's when I said, well, I thought um, I'd made it very clear that I didn't want to be part of another of your low-grade debunking programs. And he said, it's not a low-grade debunking program. It's a high-grade debunking <laughs> program. <laughs> so the director then said, cut. And um, I said to the director, is this true? And he said, yes. It's another Dawkins polemic. And I said, well, then you're here under false pretenses because that's not what your assistant persuaded me to take part in. This. But the agreement was that this was about a discussion of evidence. He said, can you prove that? And I said, yes, I can. <laughs> I printed off this email and gave a copy to Dawkins and to him. And they read it and their faces fell. And I said, well, since you're here under false pretenses, I have to ask you to leave my house. I mean, you came here saying I was led to believe, rightly or wrongly, um, and agreed on the principle. That's why we were meeting. And now it turns out you have a completely different agenda. An extraordinary act of good faith on your part, given Dawkins' record in these matters. Well, I thought that I, if he's open to evidence, I'm open to discussing it. But he, you know, he, anyway, I said to them, you know, if you mention telepathy in your program, I said, I'll find it necessary to say in public that you're talking about something for which you've actually said you're not interested in discussing the evidence. And I said, this is very far from being a scientific attitude. In fact, it's an attitude of pure dogmatism and, you know, scientific fundamentalism, all the things that you're supposed to be against. Absolutely. And we know it's that because he refuses to look at the evidence. Exactly. It's not as if you're out here just claiming these things willy-nilly. You've, no, you've done any number of experiments to... Well, exactly. Well, you see, this is now the standard position of atheistic materialist skeptics. Um, Stephen Pinker, who is a Dawkinsite in many ways, has similar views, um, wrote a book last year or earlier this year called Rationality, um, in which he argues that you don't need to look at the evidence for psychic phenomena because they're impossible. And they're impossible for two reasons. First is Hume's argument against miracles, which says that anything very, very rare that depends on distant testimony is uh, improbable because, and could be dismissed because it's not the common experience of humanity. Well, telepathy is the common experience of humanity. And the second argument was a friend of his who's also a fellow atheistic skeptic, 
uh, Sean Carroll, the cosmologist, uh, said that he thought it was impossible according to the laws of physics. Uh, well, there are plenty of physicists who think otherwise. So it's not as if this is a definitive statement of from the ex cathedra, uh, you know, the scientific statement that carries all before it on the basis of authority. It's basically an argument from authority. Um, so but there are plenty of other authorities who say different things. Anyway, I challenged Stephen Pinker to a debate about telephone telepathy and other forms of telepathy. And he simply refused to take part on the grounds he said he hadn't got the bandwidth to spend the time looking at the actual evidence, so he couldn't take part in the debate. In other words, admitting that his position was one of total pure prejudice. And, um, um, anyway, that's unfortunately the state of play among these dogmatic materialists at the moment. It's denialism and dogmatism, and it's deeply unscientific. Whereby folks can find the time and energy to badmouth these things in public and in, in print, but not find the time to look at your evidence, which is extensive. Exactly. Well, not just my evidence, plenty of other people right. have evidence too. So, um, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a, a kind of fundamentalism of the kind that they hold in contempt if, if anyone is a religious fundamentalist, but they're scientific fundamentalists, which is in many ways worse because science claims to be objective right. and open to evidence, whereas most religions don't claim that they're based on objective evidence on from laboratory experiments. They claim they're based on revelation or on revealed information. Well, science makes the claim to be different from that, and yet, right. and that makes this kind of dogmatism inexcusable really yes well i had an experience once that may show something about the possibilities of telepathy i wanted to get your response to one night i was at home and my brother happened to be at home and we grew up in this place called pumpkin bend arkansas and we were at my at our parents house one weekend and i found myself lucid dreaming and i was in this corridor with like concave dark walls on either side of me and souls were rushing towards me down that that hallway that corridor some of dead people some of living people and i and you could i could engage them in the conversation speaking of yates i had a, i had a conversation with what purported to be the the soul of yates i had this thought Eric, my brother, is right here in the house with me. I think he would enjoy this. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to marshal my mental energies towards beckoning him into this space where I am. So I did that and I really focused on it, but he didn't come. Woke up the next morning, had kind of forgotten about it, actually. And I was down getting some breakfast in the kitchen. My brother wakes up and comes down and we we're eating breakfast. And he says, Greg, I had the strangest dream about you last night. I said, what, what was it? And he said, you came to me kind of out of the blue. It's a little bit out of context in the in my dream. And you looked kind of peaked and a little scary, actually. And you had some mystery fruit in your hand. And you said, Eric, taste it. You're going to like it. Just taste this fruit. And I was so freaked out that I was kind of spooked. I, I thought, I don't, I don't think I'm going to pass. And so I passed on it. Hmm. And it seemed to be a, almost like a narrative encoding of what was happening in my dream, where I was beckoning him, and mm. and he didn't come. Mm. Well, um, 
it's it's quite well known that there are telepathic influences in dreams. I mean, quite a lot of telepathy happens through dreams when our normal rational mind that filters things out is much less active. So people are much more open telepathically in dreams than in the waking state quite often. Um, so the fact you were calling him to take part in some experience you were having is obviously he picked that up telepathically. And interestingly, telepathy is very often about calls. It's not usually about information transfer. It's not thought transference, as some people think of it. Most examples of telepathy are, I need you, I want to talk to you. Like an infant and a mother? or Yes, like a baby crying, and the mother picks it up telepathically from miles away. Or, I want to call you on the phone, I think about you, and you pick up my desire to call you or my attempt to get in touch with you and you start thinking about me. Um, so nearly all um, examples of everyday telepathy are of that kind, calls. And you were calling him in your dream and he was responding to the call. He felt the call and he felt that you were trying to get him to share in something. And in his case, it took on the form of this fruit you were trying to get him to take. So I mean, that's a kind of archetypal expression of you offering him some experience he didn't particularly want to have and um so i mean that's the way his mind interpreted the call and the fact he didn't want to share in it but i would say that the the telepathic component is is the calling within the dream and um you know people who live together or who share dreams regularly quite often have shared dreams where they can meet each other in their dreams and then actually experience the same kind of thing. And when they wake up the next day, when they say what they've done, they found they had an overlapping dream where they actually met each other. They both thought they met each other in the dream, but the other person really did meet them in the dream. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a, a, a known phenomenon. And um, it's in certain tribal societies uh, where they share their dreams every morning. It's, it's just taken for granted. In our society, where most people forget their dreams and don't take them that seriously, unless they're undergoing Freudian psychoanalysis or something, um, the, 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 most people don't get to notice this. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Rupert, and I think we're getting close to the end. I, I, I wanted to, to ask you, what kinds of changes you wish would happen in Western culture over the next several years? I'm sure there are certain changes you would like to see, and what would those be? Oh, well, um, I think first uh, a recognition that we live in the living world, that, we're, that nature is not ours simply to exploit as raw materials and make a quick buck and extract and, and dispose of and but that we, our entire survival depends on living in harmony with a living world, which is the precious world in which we find ourselves. Um, so I think unless we undergo that shift, that, in, um, that we're heading for self-imposed disasters, uh, we're already heading for them fast. Um, but that's an, a huge shift in attitude that has to happen. And that involves reconnecting with our ancestral tradition that respects and uh, nature and this exploitative attitude to nature 
um, it really dates from the 17th century when the, the beginning of the mechanistic theory of nature. Nature is dead, inanimate, mechanical, um, and we can build machines and we can exploit nature at will for human profit. This attitude, which really grew up with the scientific revolution in the 17th century and has now been exported to the entire world, um, is a disaster. I mean, it's provided many benefits, of course, in prosperity and medical advances and so forth. But we have to shift our way of thinking. And secondly, I think that the part of the reason for that being so predominant and destructive is um, the materialist ideology that goes along with science. There's nothing beyond humans in the whole universe in terms of consciousness. The entire universe is made of unconscious matter. The only conscious beings are humans, and, and basically it's all inside the brain. And maybe some higher animals have degrees of consciousness, but nothing we need worry too much about. Um, th that, that attitude, that atheistic materialist attitude, I think is extremely destructive of human society, of human welfare. Um, I think our very being requires a sense of spiritual connection to something greater than ourselves. And I'm a, a Christian myself. I'm an Anglican. Um, I'm not a, a kind of fanatically evangelical Christian. I don't think everyone in the whole world should be converted to Anglicanism. Um, uh, I think it's appropriate, though, for people who come from Christian background, which is most people in Europe and North America, um, to re-examine their Christian roots and reconnect with them if they can. If they're Jewish, to reconnect with Jewish roots. If they're Buddhist or Hindu by background, to re reconnect with those roots. I think it's, uh, it fits us better on the basis of morphic resonance to be in accordance with our ancestral traditions. Uh, but all religions contain in them a sense that we're part of something greater than ourselves, um, that human desires are not the ultimate thing that should dominate nature and the world and, and human society, um, that we should live in, in greater harmony with nature and with the spiritual realm. So I think those are very, very important cultural shifts. Um, and within science, I think that the shift from mechanistic materialism to a more holistic view of nature, seeing nature as alive, made up of different levels of inclusive organization, atoms within molecules, molecules in crystals, uh, or organelles in cells, in tissues, in organs, in organisms, in societies, in ecosystems, in planets, in solar systems, in galaxies. Everything in nature has different levels of organization, which include the lower levels. And um, we're part of an organized system, um, we're, that nature is much more like a living organism. The universe is much more like a developing organism than like a machine, which is the 17th century view. It was like some kind of clockwork machine that God, an external machine-making God, designed and then pressed the start button and then retired, and it went on automatically. Um, and then later people said, well, why do you need this God to press a start button? I mean, it's just been like that forever. And it, they got rid of God, and you got sort of first deism, an external God, and then atheism, no need for God at all. Um, um, that kind of science is alienating and destructive and uh, gives us no sense of our own mind or purpose or 
consciousness. So I think a revolution in science moving towards a more holistic worldview is already beginning to happen. And when that happens, I think we'd have a much more harmonious society uh, where the claims of science are no longer anti-religious as expressed in people like uh, Stephen Pinker and Richard Dawkins, uh, where they take science to equal uh, materialistic atheism. Um, I don't think there's any reason at all why science has to be atheistic. In fact, I think the reasons for it being materialist and atheist are very poor reasons indeed, based on an outmoded ideology. Um, so I think that the realms of science, religion, and spirituality will, will become, can become much more harmonious. And uh, along with that, a revival of spiritual practices. Um, because all religions grow out of experience. Uh, they all grow out of mystical experience. And Buddhism didn't happen because the Buddha did a PhD. Um, you know, and Jesus' sense of being totally connected with God the Father first was manifested to him at the moment of his baptism, a, a direct mystical experience of connection that was then followed by a 40-day vision quest in the desert. Um, so the these religious systems grow out of mystical experience. And um, I think spiritual practices can help to uh, give us that sense of connection. And in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I deal with seven, including pilgrimage. And in my sequel to that, Ways to Go Beyond, Why They Work, sports, for example, is yeah. one of them. That uh, for many people, sports although they think of it as totally secular, is a way of coming into the present. And a lot of spiritual rights is about being present. Well, sports are a very, very good way mm -hmm. of coming into the present. And I think in the modern world, they actually play the role of a spiritual practice without most people thinking of it. I was delighted to see that in, in that book. And I thought about my many afternoons in my local park playing basketball under that big, bright Texas sun that feels like love when it falls on your face and shoulders yes and, and, and i thought also about your idea that the sun is conscious yes so i think that through reconnecting with spiritual practices and the sense of a spiritual presence in our lives and the fact that we're part of something much greater than ourselves um i think it makes individual lives more satisfying i think it helps to build up community and it helps to give us a much greater sense of connection with the natural world of which we're part and all of these, I think, are very necessary changes. And pilgrimage is one very simple way of actually embodying this change. And the fact that in here in Europe, there's been a huge upsurge of pilgrimage in the last 20 or 30 years is, I think, a physical expression of people going on a spiritual journey. I mean, it's literally a physical expression right. of a spiritual journey. Uh, so that's just one of the symptoms of this cultural change that's happening right now. Well, I, I think it's easier for us poets and songwriters out here to champion ideas like Yeats's Anima Mundi, the soul of the world, or your morphic resonance. I think it's riskier and braver for a scientist to do so. And you've done that and shown that there's a different and better way of doing science. And I'm personally grateful to you for that work. I know many others are as well. It obviously hasn't been easy, and you've come under fire for it. Well, luckily, it's fun. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. 
Thank you, Rupert. Thank you for your time today. This has been a delightful conversation. Punchline Meet me at the 7-Eleven